ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. This is the NT Country Hour on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory. G'day there, my name's Matt Brand. Welcome to the program. There will be a Senate inquiry into alleged price gouging by the major supermarkets, but not everyone's convinced it's the right way to go. I don't believe that politicians should be doing this. I think the ACCC should be doing it. They're equipped uh, to be able to look into this and to be able then to give advice about what needs to happen. Also today, I look at how those aquifer levels are faring in Darwin's rural area. And the Dolby Australian stock horse sale, it was held over the weekend with a territory horse breeder doing very, very well. He sold one on Saturday night for 94000 I think, so he's $2,000 off the top. He managed to sell four or five horses for an average of $54,000, so he was, he was over the moon. $94,000 for a territory stock horse. That's big dollars. This is all coming up on today's Country Hour. Let's get into it. We are broadcasting across the Territory on the ABC, streaming online, and g'day there if you are tuning in via the podcast. Uh, First up today... It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. It is beginning to look a lot like Christmas. And in the spirit of giving, if you live on a rural block and you've got gamber grass... Well, you're now eligible to receive free herbicide to help control this weed. The NT government's Gamba Action Program is in its 13th year of handing out glyphosate and the weeds branch believes it is making a difference. Dan Fitzgerald went down to Fred's Pass where the herbicide is being handed out. Yeah, g'day Dan. My name's Tom Price. I'm with the Weeds Management Branch. Um, in Darwin, we're here for the opening of the Gamba Action Program down at Fred's Pass Reserve. Yeah, we're going to be here on Mondays and Fridays and every second Saturday at the Fred's Pass Markets um, delivering out free herbicide for Gamba assistance. So it's a landholder assistance program. It's our uh, Gamba Action Program. So what we do with this is we give landholders assistance by um, giving them free herbicide to manage their Gamba and also equipment loans, which we uh, give out for people to help spray their gamba. Who's eligible? Uh, any landholder that has gamba grass, really. So we have, um, it's mainly targeted at our rural blockies that have a lot of gamba, well, in and amongst the rural area, um, to try to get them uh, up in line. Everybody needs to be controlling their gamba on their properties, so we're really targeting these people and you know, just giving them a bit of a leg up to, to get their program going. This program has been in place for a number of years now. I've just spoken with a fellow who came in to pick up some glyphosate and he reckons he's got on top of his gamba. Is that a common story? Uh, yeah, it is, actually. No, it's really good. We get lots of people coming back every year. Um, they're quite often very excited to tell us that you know the big difference that they've made using this program. What you find is that people, they learn year from year. They learn little different techniques and you know better ways to spray and... I think the fellow that you were just talking to was talking about new equipment that he's got and everything. Um, but yeah, we do we do hear a lot of good stories. And the other thing that we also hear is that, you know, one person started it on their street and then the next person's got onto the program as well and they've started to get gambling now. We're starting to see whole streets, you know, looking much, much better. Yeah. yeah what is it looking like out in the rural area? Are some places starting to get under control? 
Uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. So, oh, 10 years ago, you'd go down the rural area and you'd see big fire breaks and gamba, you know, all along people's boundaries in particular and around houses. Um, things are looking much better these days. You know, people, you, you can drive out later in the wet season and you'll see lots of dead gamba, which is what we want to see. Um, and, yeah, I think there's... There's obviously a lot of community support for people getting behind. They're seeing their danger that, you know, Gamba poses to bushfires and things like that. So, yeah, it's it's really starting to make a good difference. And there have been a few changes for the rules for those, especially on smaller blocks. What are they? Yeah, so Gamba is uh, subject to a statutory management plan, a stat plan. Um, with that stat plan coming into force this year is that um, all properties of less than three hectares actually need to have all of their gamba being managed. So previously it was just fire breaks and around infrastructure and those sorts of things. But yeah, coming into force this year is that it is a requirement that all of the gamba on those properties is managed. What happens if they don't? Um, so look, there will be inspections going out on properties. Um, there is compliance. We prefer not to go down the route of compliance. We just prefer people to actually you know, get on board with the program and, you know, um, start controlling their own gamba, but there will be inspections and compliance officers later in the season heading out. Yeah. Now, last year, the price of glyphosate, it went sky high due to a lot of yeah. worldwide factors, and there wasn't as much glyphosate available because the program didn't have any more funding. Yeah. What are things like this year? So, thankfully, the price of glyphosate has gone down substantially since uh, the post-COVID era um, yeah so we have a lot more herbicide available this year for the program it's still limited to five litres per landholder um, we will give out um, if you do have multiple blocks we will give up out to 10 litres so two separate things but every block will have to be signed off as part of the program um, but there is more more herbicide to go around this year so yeah we're hoping the program will have enough to run its um, full term right into the end of April yeah so hopefully just more blocks and more people getting involved. Exactly right, Tim. Yeah, we just want to see everybody who's got Gamba come and be part of this program and, you know, see if you can make a big difference on your own property. Yeah, everybody getting together will yeah, be really good for the rural area and for Darwin as a whole. It's pretty warm out here in the rural area today. You and I are both sweating standing in the shade. What's it like out spraying Gamba at this time of the year? Well, it's never the most pleasant job, but it's a job that, you know, I think once you get into it and once you start doing it and seeing the difference that you can make, it's actually, I don't know, people really, a lot of the time, get a kick out of it. And we get these repeat customers coming back every year, as I said, you know, telling us the big difference that they've been making. And, yeah, it's, whilst it might not seem like the most exciting job, it is actually a job that you feel rewarded when you see the, the end result, yeah. Hello, my name's Susan. I live in Herbert. Today I'm at the Gamba place at Fred's Pass Reserve collecting my bottle of poison. And what is the Gamba situation like at your place? We work pretty hard at keeping it under control. Our neighbours are pretty good as well, but they do it later in the year than what we do. So sometimes we have problems with seeds just flying around all over the place and it's once we think we've got it under control more's coming up all the time so it's a never-ending battle so it's it's a real community-wide effort that's needed hey it is it definitely is and this is a good start and what is it like 
being outside in the wet season trying to spray gamber at this time of the year? Hot. Very, very hot. Yeah. It's a thankless job, really. It's something you have to do if you want to keep it under control. But um, the only person that benefits from it really is you. And why is it important to you to get gamba under control? Because it's a pest. It's, it's a real pest. And it's a fire hazard. Yeah, it's a, a really big fire hazard. My son's a volunteer fireman. And over the dry season, most of the times when they're called out, it's because of gamba. You know, that's the, what's feeding the fires. Well, best of luck getting yours under control. Thanks for the chat. Thank you. That is Susan from Herbert getting hold of her free herbicide out at Fred's Pass where you too can go and pick up some free glyphosate if you head along to Fred's Pass on Mondays and Fridays, 7.30 to 10.30 in the morning or 2.30 to 5.30 in the afternoon. So if you go out to Fred's Pass this afternoon between 2.30 and 5.30, bang, go and pick up your five litres and away you go. I'm told the Gamba Action Program will also be at the Fred's Pass Markets every second weekend from here on. So plenty of opportunities to go and get your free herbicide. It is 20 to 1, and you are tuned into the Country Hour. A Senate inquiry is set to grill the two major supermarkets on the prices that they charge you. Is this a good idea or not? You can join the conversation this afternoon. Our text number is 0487 991057. G'day, my name is Floyd. Yeah, I work in the Spanish mackerel fishery and in the Gulf of Carpentaria. I love what I do and love my job. And You're listening to the Country Hour. Matt Brown with you this afternoon. Uh, just on our story then about gamba grass and free herbicide now available. I've got a text here from Alex who says, Matt, there's perhaps nothing that symbolises the north-south divide in the Northern Territory than the gamba control program in the top end. Meanwhile, after recent good rainfall in the centre, the buffalo grass has gone ballistic and we're watching the fuel load grow for the next round of wildfires. Yes, no free herbicide for buffalo. Says Alex this afternoon, 0487991057. And a message here from Mark in Howard Springs. He says, Matt, the government might like to look in their own backyard. Plenty of gamba in the public spaces. Another example of government privatising problems. I'd like to see the government apply the rules to themselves, says Mark. On that text line, 0487991057. Making national headlines today is that the Greens have won support for a Senate inquiry into alleged price gouging by the major supermarkets. The Greens say it's pretty sick that Coles and Woolies are making billions in profits during a cost of living crisis. Here is Greens Senator Sarah Hanson Young. Well, this is going to be a good inquiry and an important one because we know cost of living is is going through the roof right now. People are 
finding it really tough and in the lead up to Christmas I think people are feeling that more than ever. Uh, the cost of uh, people's supermarket trolley at the end of the week is becoming um, a, a really hard thing to, to bear week in, week out. You know, I've been talking to parents in my electorate who are wondering whether they should even you know, enrol their kids in uh, the, the you know, school holiday programs. Are they going to have the ability to afford that and, and the Christmas lunch? I think uh, we do need a, to crack down on this. This inquiry will look at the duopoly between uh, Coles and Woolworths. It will consider price gouging. It will consider whether the ACCC needs more powers. I hear um, Alan Fells out, the former ACCC um, chair this morning, backing this in. We do need a focus on these big corporations who take so much <laughs> so much out of the pockets of families and Australians while raking in billions of dollars worth of profits. I mean, it's pretty sick, isn't it, that Woolworths has had billions, a billion dollars of profit this year and yet uh, Australians are, are struggling to pay their food bills. Meanwhile, as mentioned, the former ACCC boss, Alan Fells, is conducting his own inquiry into supermarkets at the moment on behalf of the ACTU. And yes, he says a Senate inquiry would also be good. Well, I do think there's value in getting these things out to the public. The public wants answers on what's happening at retail, and that will happen. And also we can get in Parliament aired a whole lot of policy questions. Like I'm in favour of having a divestiture law, that is to be able to break up big monopolies where a court thinks it's the right thing to do. We can discuss that, or the Senate can discuss that in its inquiry. I'm curious to know about the lack of transparency because we've heard from farmers that when they get their price for milk, for example, and then they see the, the shop price in the supermarket, there's a massive discrepancy. Is there a real lack of transparency on how things are priced? Absolutely. It's the middle person, what we used to call the middle man, that needs to be looked into. Not only retailers, but processors, in the case of meat, abattoirs and so on. And Public inquiries do get into that a bit. There are limits on what a Senate inquiry can do. It may be that it has to be sent after that to the ACCC to get into it in depth. Meanwhile, the leader of the Nationals, David Littleproud, has rejected calls for a Senate inquiry. He's arguing that an investigation by the ACCC would be a better idea and he said would have far more powers to probe the supermarkets than a Senate inquiry. I don't believe that politicians should be doing this. I think the ACCC should be doing it. They're equipped uh, to be able to look into this and to be able then to give advice about what needs to happen. We've been calling for a price monitoring inquiry, particularly since we saw such a big reduction, a 60% reduction in cattle and sheep prices, yet only an 8% in meat prices at the supermarket. You look at horticulture, uh, they're paying about a dollar a kilogram to our watermelon growers, but yet they're retailing them for three to four. You know, you don't need to process a watermelon, you throw it in the back of a truck and it ends up on a shelf. So these supermarkets have form. They did this over during COVID, the ACCC former uh, chair made that very clear that those big profits that they made was at the expense of the consumer and supplier and so it's important now that we call them out as quickly as we can. This this ACCC uh, inquiry could actually compel the CEOs to turn up. The Senate inquiry doesn't compel the CEOs to turn up and give evidence. That's why it's important you use the right mechanism. The government's doing a broader review of competition policy and the nationals have made it very clear 
both publicly and privately, I've said to the competition minister, that we would support divestiture powers so that if the supermarkets did the wrong thing, uh, they could lose Dan Murphy's or a BWS uh, as part of their chains. There should be proper penalties, not $64,000 as it is now under the Grocery Code of Conduct. It, it should start at $10 million and ramp up. There should be a cheap independent arbiter for suppliers uh, to be able to come forward and show that they've been mistreated in the consumer law reforms. But the cost of living crisis is here and now, and that's why we're saying that this short, sharp price monitoring inquiry on perishable goods, particularly meat and vegetables, um, would be able to have some action now and could have had action before Christmas had the government acted sooner. It's not illegal, though, is it, for the big supermarkets to, to bump up prices and bump up their, their profit margins as long as the, the two big supermarkets aren't colluding? Well, and, and this, is the, this is the challenge that we've got, is that, yes, they're entitled to, to put whatever mark up they want, but this is where, when you've got such a concentration, a concentration of market power between effectively two and a half big supermarkets, uh, with the big German being the third, you know, this is, this is where governments need to understand the importance of, of their role in marketplaces where there is an imbalance. That is the time that a government should, should inject itself into the marketplace. And there is a market imbalance. ACCC has even said that. There's a market imbalance in that these, these supermarkets have too much of the share and therefore uh, they're deriding the prices, not necessarily directly through collusion, but just by the sheer, sheer volume of, of their share. So that's where you need to make hard decisions as government, particularly on a product that is a staple for our survival. So, uh, you know, I think there's some compelling reasons for us to start to get very tough on, on the supermarkets and make sure that while we want them to make a profit, there has to be a, a, a conscionable pro uh, profit that is justifiable on a staple product that, that underpins our own survival. That's Leader of the Nationals, David Littleproud, speaking to Angus Verley. On social media this morning, the Federal Ag Minister, Murray Watt, was also putting pressure on the big supermarkets, calling on them to put a price freeze on Christmas hams. He wants the supermarkets to do that so families can budget this Christmas. Well, with Christmas approaching, I've got a very simple message for the big supermarket chains. Hands off our ham. We know that many Australians look forward to a Christmas ham and I want to make sure that they're not paying too much at the checkout this Christmas. Right now, the major retailers are charging eight bucks a kilo for Christmas hams. I want to make sure that they don't lift those prices over the next couple of weeks when we see more demand happening. I've been pleased to see the supermarkets start to reduce their prices for meat after I've been calling on them to do so for the last couple of months. Now it's time to look at the Christmas ham, keep those prices reasonable so that Aussies can enjoy a good Christmas. The Federal Ag Minister Murray Watt calling for a price freeze on Christmas hams. There's now a Senate inquiry going to be happening, looking hard at supermarkets and the prices they're charging you. Will it result in anything? 0487991057 is our text number at the Country Hour. If you'd like to join the conversation, up next on this program, we'll be talking about the Dolby Australian Stock Horse Sale, which was held on the weekend. Some Really big dollars forked out for stock horses. And for one territory horse breeder, ooh, it was a very handy weekend. With the ABC Listen app, you can take the cricket with you anywhere you go. Boom! Off to the beach. Take the cricket. Road trip. Take the cricket. Museum visit. Shh, take the cricket. Seriously? You want to listen? <laughs> 
ABC Sports expert coverage of every test. Big shot, he's out. One day up. Australia celebrating. And T20. Over the rope for another six. Live and commercial free. So whatever you're up to this summer, take the cricket with you and listen big on the ABC Listen app. It is seven to one. You are tuned into the Country Hour. A horse breeder from Catherine has had a very successful weekend at the Australian Stock Horse Sale in Dolby. Wayne Bean sold one horse for $94,000. And that was just a couple of thousand dollars shy of the top price for the sale. David Felch was one of the organisers there at Dolby and says there was plenty of demand for quality stock horses. Yeah, it was, uh, it was a wet start to the sale. We had plenty of rain um, the week leading into the sale and the week of the sale, and then it dried out for the sale. And we, um, yeah, we catalogued 315 horses and managed to get an 87% clearance. So it was good. The crowd was good both days and with good online support from Auctions Plus as well. And there'll be a fair few horses going back to the Northern Territory, I hear. Yes, we had, we did have great support from the Northern Territory. We had people here um, buying horses from the Territory uh, and we all, with orders, and we also had a fair presence, a fair online presence with uh, on the Auctions Plus system that, you know, it comes up on the screen. They're from the Northern Territory, so there was a fair bit of that. And Catherine's own Wayne Bean, he did pretty well. Tell us about uh, his horse at... Almost got the top price. Yeah, he sold one on uh, Saturday night for ninety four thousand. I think so. He's two thousand dollars off the top. This is his first time selling back in Derby. I think for I don't know whether he has before or certainly not since we've had the sale. And everyone knows the um, the foundation that Wayne Bean puts on his horses and and the quality of horses that they are. And it was just uh, it was that again. And he managed to sell. Oh, I was four or five horses for an average of fifty-four thousand dollars. So he was, he was over the moon. And David, what makes somebody pay almost one hundred thousand dollars for a stock horse? Uh, well, breeding. It would be the breeding in the in the mare that that he sold. She was an Acres Destiny mare, and the foundation on the mare and the training that she's had, and the way she was presented, it was just. Um, it was just a really quality horse. And, you know, another horse went round it to $96,000. But once again, the foundation on those horses and the training that they've had and the breeding is what makes those horses so so valuable. Now, this is called a stock horse sale. Are all of these horses going to be out working in the paddock? Well, some may be working in the paddock. Some may be competing um, in the camp draft and stock horse show arenas and whatever, what have you. But, yeah, I'd say majority of them will go to the paddock and then some of the mares may be used for breeding and such, but a lot of them will be ridden for work. Over the years, has that changed? Are there more horses being used for competitions, especially like camp drafting, given the the prize money that is available in some camp drafts these days? Yeah, absolutely. And we've seen that develop in the, you know pretty extensively over the last sort of five years, I suppose. And the professionalism that's coming into the sport and I think the large prize money is what's allowing people to do it as a profession and a and a job as opposed to just doing it on the weekend as a you know as a hobby I mean there's still that that's the best thing about camp drafting anyone can go and do it whether you're just a weekender or you do it full-time but that's leading into these sales 
you know, we've got an incentive program that, that puts up a lot of money and that drives the value of these horses. But also from years going, and we've been involved in it for five years with the Ray White team. And, you know, from back in 2018, when I got involved in it, the quality of horses that we've got in the catalogue has just been, it's been on a really sharp rise. It's been fantastic. That's David Felsch from Ray White Rural in Dolby, Queensland, speaking to Dan Fitzgerald about that sale on the weekend. So in total, 231 horses sold, a clearance rate of 87%, an average sale price of just over $20,000. Congratulations again to Wayne Bean from Catherine, who sold the second most expensive horse in that sale for $94,000. Well done to Wayne. And in total, 19 stock horses will be making their way back to the Territory. I'm told Hatesbury Cattle Company bought five. Uh, matches turtle, cattle class, tow drive for Sherbet Livestock. We're all flat out, give us plenty of room on the road and you're listening to the Country Hour. And just quickly to some resources news, a gas company that's operating in the Beedaloo Basin has gone and bought a processing facility. I'm joined in the studio by Dan Fitzgerald. What can you tell us about Empire Energy's new buy? Empire Energy has bought a gas processing plant from AGL, which has recently been shut down in New South Wales. So this is something which turns the gas that comes out of the ground into a product that can be put into a pipe, compressed, and then sold to Hmm. a customer. It's paid $2.5 million for this plant. And Empire says uh, it's currently going through approvals for a pilot project in the Beedaloo, and if that is approved, the company will use this processing plant on five wells and connect it into the MacArthur River gas pipeline. Hmm. And subject to those approvals, the company is aiming to connect to the pipeline in next year's dry season, it says, which it believes would result in gas sales commencing in 2025. And on the topic of gas, Santos is back in court today. Yeah, so this is a hearing over Santos's Barossa gas pipeline. It kicked off in the federal court this morning. This is the legal challenge that was brought by Tiwi traditional owner Simon Mankara, who's raised concerns about that pipeline's potential impacts on his cultural dreaming sites out there in the Timor Sea. Uh, there is an injunction in place about this pipeline, uh, so Santos can only operate on a small section of that. Uh, But a decision on this whole case, it's not due until early next year. Okay, thank you for that, Dan Fitzgerald. I've just quickly, in the calculator, worked out that you could either buy a gas plant to put in the Beedaloo for $2.5 million or go and buy 26 horses from Wayne Bain. (laughs) I mean, you know, it just sort of depends who you are, isn't it? But that's uh, the options out there in 2023. Uh, We're going to go to the newsroom. It is 1 o'clock, so you're back here in 5 for a chat with the Weather Bureau. Hello, my name is Salaudi Botongoleoi and I am from Crocodile Island Rangers, one of the women coordinators. And you are listening to the Country Hour. Matt Brown with you this afternoon. In a moment, we'll take a look at how aquifers are faring in Darwin's rural area. And before 1.30, I'll take you to the SANT border where a small community is working hard to revitalise its local fruit orchard. There's some beautiful pictures up on our website right now if you search for NT Country Hour. And you'll learn more about this story very, very soon. But first, let's go to the Weather Bureau. 
Sally Cutter is there this afternoon. And Sally, you've got the rainfall figures for the weekend gone, the 72-hour period. What are some of the best ones? Oh, if you start down to around the Victoria River area, East Baines River had 64 millimetres, Bullo River 38, over in the Rose MacArthur area, 39 at Bullman, 65 at Wangalara. The Conways had 103. The oh. MacArthur, yeah, MacArthur River Airstrip 55. The up in Arnhem Land, not quite so much apart from Urganella. They had 105, and I think most of it actually fell yesterday. Owen Pally Airport said 41, sorry, 51. The over the western top end, so we've got B-Boom Crossing with 41, 68 at Haywood Creek, the 53 at Point Fawcett, Douglas River Research Farm 46, 72 at Adelaide River Post Office, Central Arnhem Plateau had 102, Adelaide River Town and Station both had 65 millimetres. Yeah, so there's been some big falls. It's Tortilla Flats 37. Okay, and the week ahead, what can people expect in terms of rainfall? Uh, probably more the same. So the steering does pick up a little bit over the top end, so the totals mightn't be quite so big, but we're still expecting those showers and storms across the top end and down through into the Carpentaria district. The more isolated and maybe sort of a few dry showers and storms through the Barclay and Tanami today and tomorrow. And then as we go through the week, we've got northerly winds developing across the, the territory and that's just going to slowly return that moisture down to the southern parts, which was some dry has got into the Simpson, which is why it's relatively quiet there. But then they're going to extend throughout. We do, and it is going to get hot, and we do have heat waves warnings for particularly down the western half of the NT, but we are going to see a cool change come through on the weekend. On the weekend, we, yeah, but yeah, weekend. in the meantime, I mean, even oh, yeah. today, you know, Dagaragu is expecting a top of 42, Yalara a top of 43. Yeah. Tell us about how extreme some of this heat will get this week and what's driving it. Uh, basically, the sun's overhead, down, so we're getting towards the summer solstice, so the sun's pretty much overhead central Australia. The, we've got cloud or lack of cloud cover and we haven't got any just not this it's the same air mass sitting there just being heated by the sun so it's not there's been nothing to really cool it down so that's probably the the main issues there and then you add a little bit of northerly in there and that just brings any hotter air from the north and the humid air it takes a little bit longer to heat up but if the air is already warm it doesn't cool down either and that's what's leading to those heat wave conditions with both the maximum and the minimums being much, much hotter than usual. And no relief really until more like Sunday. Yeah, a little bit of cooling on Saturday, particularly if you're down to Yulara Way in the Leicester district, but the the real cooling across the right across the south is also is going to take off. Well, there's further cooling in the Leicester on Sunday, but Simpson is going to have to wait until Sunday. Okay, and well, we heard on Friday that the Matt and Julian oscillation is sort of in um, you know Australia's neck of the woods at the moment, or or about to be. And there is talk of the potential, the potential for a cyclone to form well, well, well off the east coast. What can you tell us about that? 
It is off the east coast, and fortunately, so it's coming towards the Coral Sea, it's moving into the Coral Sea. The, we do now do a seven-day cyclone outlook, so if anybody wants to go to our website, if you drop down menus under warnings in the top right-hand corner on that yellow banner, got tropical cyclones, and they will show you where we expect this, this or the... Somewhere in the blob is where we expect the centre of the cyclone or low to be at each 12-hour time step. And then the colour is what, how likely it is to be a cyclone. And then, so it does get very big towards the end but because that's the uncertainty. But it is heading into the Coral Sea at the moment. Okay. I've just brought up that website that you're talking about. So... Yeah, come Thursday, Friday, there's a high possibility that yep. it will be a cyclone and would be called Jasper, is my understanding. Yeah, if if we if Australia names it, it will be Jasper. If it forms into a cyclone, it's up up in that corner, the area that's shaded out around that bit sticking up. It's really hard to describe. If it's in one of those grey areas, either Fiji or PNG will name it and it will get, so they will kick off their list. And then when it moves into the Australian region, so probably the best example of that is Yazi. Yazi wasn't isn't on our list, but it was on Fiji's list, uh-huh. and so we kept the name when it came into our area. Okay, well it's one to watch, isn't it? There is a chance yeah, that you could get into yeah. sort of Queensland waters. Yeah. Yeah. All right then. Have a lovely afternoon, Sally. We do. Thanks very much. Enjoy a feast of movies for free on ABC iView. From Colin Firth and Geoffrey Rush in The King's Speech. At last, sir, here's your speech. You are on air at six. To Dame Judi Dench in Red Joan. I am not a spy. Plus Carol, Boy, Empire Records, Burlesque and so many more. A feast of delicious movies all summer long. Bon appétit. Streaming free and ad-free on ABC iView. It is 11 past one. You are tuned in to the Country Hour. Once a month on this show, we like to take a look at how aquifers are faring in Darwin's rural area. We do that with the NT's Director of Water Assessment, Adrian Costa. Uh, Adrian, we are starting to get a few wet season storms. How are those groundwater levels looking? Yeah, Darwin Rural is uh, underlined by the, the Howard system and we've seen a drop in there, although we've had a bit of rainfall below average, of course, for November. It hasn't been great in terms of rainfall and the drop is, um, you know, it's not the one metre drop that we've had in the past. It was around about 25 centimetre drop and we did see some rises in some areas, a couple of bores, uh, one to one and a half metre rise, but um, as we know, the rainfall is quite localised. The Berry Spring system did drop by 0.3 and um, we do our predictive modelling for the end of dry and we are very close to that level, but we're not quite on it yet. But um, we are at two and a half to three metres under where we were last year. So, um, yeah, we're hoping to see a little bit more rainfall in December. Mm. It, there's been decent rain further south, yeah? Has is, is that, is that been seen now in groundwater levels? That's right, yeah. So um, if I start with Catherine, uh, in November, they my data says they had around about 135 millimetres and uh, that translates to the Tyndall aquifer in that area, the, the limestone uh, aquifer there and um, that's starting to recover since early November. So things are looking pretty good. That aquifer system there has a fair bit of storage in it. Um, and then if you head down to Tennant Creek, 50 mils there and Alice Springs is the big one, 90 mils in November. In fact, um, they had a severe thunderstorm storm last week 
um, that saw a bit of minor flow in the Todd River. And Alice Springs, 90 millimetres, I mean, that's, you know, above the average totals for October, November and December combined. So it's looking pretty good. But we hope, um, you know, going through the season that we have certainly a lot more rainfall and, and hopefully Darwin gets a bit of that too. Can I ask for your take on when the first monsoonal burst is due? <laughs> uh, well, I'll go from what the Bureau say, and, and I'd suggest probably mid-January is my guess. But, yeah, uh, oh, gee, that's yeah. at the later end of the forecast. Yep. <laughs> it is. I'm hedging my bets there, but, um, yeah, that's my that's my prediction. But um, but, but who knows? Um, obviously, we've had a few little microbursts already, and, and that's good to see, quite encouraging, but we'd like a lot, a lot more of that for the ACFA levels. Thanks for your time. Yeah, thanks, Pat. Good to be with you. G'day, my name's Trevor Derling. I work for Parent Water and you're listening to The Country Hour. And speaking of water, the contract to design an off-stream dam on the Adelaide River has been given to the engineering company SMEC. So we're talking about the Adelaide River Off-Stream Water Storage Project, a.k.a. Arrows, Governments don't like to use the word dam, so they call it an off-stream water storage project. Ah. If you're not familiar with Arrows, it involves siphoning wet season flood waters out of the Adelaide River and into a, let's face it, into a dam near Acacia Hills there. It's a project that's been on the books for decades, but now it is happening. It is happening, it would seem. So this has been described as the largest water storage infrastructure project in northern Australia at the moment, and it aims to secure Darwin's water supply for the next 50 years. It'll also create a few opportunities for agriculture, according to Minister Eva Lawler. So $6 million to design what we will need to do and what we'll need to have in place for Adelaide River off-stream water storage. Um, Adelaide River will provide water for drinking in the Territory, the drinking in the top end in Darwin. Um, it'll also provide water for manufacturing at Middle Arm, but it'll also provide water for agriculture out at Lambles Lagoon. So Lam Lambles Lagoon is an area that, uh, where the aquifer is totally committed, but it's an area of good soil and we see um, a lot of small farming, but also quite large farming with mangoes out in that Lambles Lagoon area. So Adelaide River Offstream Water Storage will provide water for Lambles Lagoon. Um, that water won't be treated, so it'll go straight there. There'll be a pipeline there. So this um, work and this announcement today is vitally important. We need to do that design work, and I congratulate SMEC for, for being the, the successful tenderer. Uh, SMEC has been in the Territory probably for about 40 years. that have had an office here for probably about 12 years. So congratulations to SMEC, um, a Territory company, uh, but there's a lot of work ahead of us um, to do that design work. As Eva Lawler, the Minister for Territory Development, announcing that tender this morning. So $6 million for SMEC to do the design work for Arrows. I've got here the design is expected to take 12 to 18 months to complete, with construction of Arrows expected to start in 2026. Now, SMEC's got a bit of a history when it comes to Arrows. It actually did a feasibility study on Arrows for a previous NT government. The Country Hour, when we did a story about, oh, I think it was two or three years ago now, uh, during that time we sought a copy of that feasibility study by SMEC when we weren't successful. We never got given 
a copy of that feasibility study, but SMEX certainly had its eye on this project for a long time and has now got that tender to the tune of $6 million. Hi, I'm Hamish Monroe from Peartree Intelligence, based in New South Wales, and uh, you're listening to The Country Hour. An Aboriginal community just over the NTSA border wants to revitalise its fruit orchard. It's hoped the nearby supply of fresh produce would improve the health of the local residents and boost food security and plenty more as Victoria Ellis reports. We're going to go and pick all the fruits up. Come on. You want to pick one? Hi, my name is Lois Fraser and I'm a Bidjandjara woman. I live at Kenmore Park. Kenmore Park is an Anunganu community in the APY lands of South Australia, about 460 kilometres south of Alice Springs. The community is home to an orchard that was once flourishing and producing buckets full of grapes, oranges, mandarins, lemons, apricots and peaches, among other fruits. It was maintained by a retired couple from Clare in South Australia, but as the pair got older and their health declined, they moved back south and the orchard fell into disrepair. Um, at the moment, it's not in a good uh, good condition because of lack of water, but uh, some of the local people from Alice Springs are here, being here and helping us with fixing all the irrigations uh, and bits and pieces to get up and running again. Why would you like to see this orchard get up and running again? So that we can feed the hungry kids in the APY lands and to share the fruits, share with them the anangus. The burden of disease for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people is 2.3 times that of non-Indigenous Australians. And Indigenous Australians also have a shorter life expectancy at birth. National Rural Health Alliance Chief Executive Susie Teagan said rejuvenating the orchard could improve the health of Kenmore Park residents. It's extremely important for um, the population in general, let alone Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, um, to have a healthy diet. You know, if, if you had more fruit and vegetables, the chronic diseases such as cardiovascular disease, type 2 diabetes, chronic kidney disease and some cancers would be reduced because they're responsible for at least 75% of the mortality gap between Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander and other Australians. Ms Tegan said the exercise and a sense of achievement from maintaining the orchard could also improve the health of the community and provide residents with an opportunity to educate themselves and work. Donald Fraser, Lois's father, remembers the orchard when it was thriving. And it grow and grow and grow, and that's why the gate was open for anybody, non-Aboriginal people and Aboriginal people to come and pick what they want. Can you tell me, Donald, why it was so important for the community to have that those fresh fruit and vegetables right there? Why was it that everybody needed that? We always wanted to live off the land because we were so far away from everywhere else. I was living in Adelaide and uh, that was a dream. For Donald, Lois and the community, the orchard means they'll always have food, even if their cars break down 
or they run out of money. How much is that going to be helpful for you guys? Uh, fully, because um, it'll help us um, survive with the fruits. Maybe, <clears throat> maybe in the long run, we, if we sell some products from here and then save some money and, and try and um, build our own little shop here in Kenmore. Susie Teagan says this is an opportunity for the Departments of Health and Agriculture to collaborate with the community and improve outcomes. It's a community grassroots approach to solving a problem which actually can be done with the community um, that would provide a much better health outcome. That is Susie Teagan, who's the Chief Executive of the National Rural Health Alliance, speaking there to Victoria Ellis. And you can learn more about this story and see some beautiful pictures if you head along to the NT Country Hour website. I'm tipping it'll be a warm, warm week in Kenmore Park. There is a severe heatwave warning in place this week for the Tiwi, Gregory, Lassiter and Tenamai districts. This summer, have a safe one by learning your ABCs. A is for action plan. Having an action plan means you know what you're going to do and how you're going to do it. B is for be safe. Be aware of the hazards you may face in the local area. C is for connect. Connect to abc.net.au slash emergency for the latest emergency information. During an emergency, listen to your local ABC radio station. ABC Radio is your emergency broadcaster. We started today's program talking about gamma grass and how there's now free herbicide available for people living on a rural block who have got gamba grass. So if you're interested in that, you've got an opportunity to pick up the free glyphosate on Mondays and Fridays, right? So Mondays and Fridays from 7.30 to 10.30 in the morning and then from 2.30 to 5.30 in the afternoon. So if you head along to Fred's Pass this afternoon, you can go and get that free herbicide. There'll also be some opportunities via the Fred's Pass markets. People from the Gamba Action Program will be there every second weekend. And I guess if you've got any more questions, contact the local department and get in touch with the Weeds Branch. Uh, that's all we've got time for on today's Country Hour. If you've missed any of it, you can catch it via the podcast. Keep it rural.